0: Y'all sound really good. It's so good to worship with you. I don't want to say you sound better than the first service. It's not a contest. Um, Hey, I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. And before we dive into the sermon, I did just want to say one thing real quick. Last week, if you were with us, we did uh, like there was a moment where my wife and I were up here on stage and there was like a commissioning and y'all prayed over us Um, and they didn't ever give me a microphone. So I didn't get to say this last week, but I just wanted to say thank you Like that was so meaningful for us as a family, and I say this all the time behind your back, but I will say it to your face. This is a wonderful place to be a pastor, and you all have always been so good to us, to our family, to me. So thank you for that. That was very meaningful. Um, If you have a Bible, why don't you find your way to Mark chapter one? We're gonna pick up where we left off last week, Um, and we're gonna read a passage today that uh, in the book of Mark, this is the first time that Jesus speaks. Now, it's notable because Mark is most likely the first gospel ever written, and so you kind of think about it, even in the arc of history, like this is the first time that someone put pen to paper and said, we should write down what he said. And what he writes down is an extraordinary sentence that we need to, to track with because it's incredibly important to what he came to do, to everything else in the book of Mark, and to what he has to do with our life. Um, but I want to highlight an issue that we have to overcome first, and I brought a visual aid. Some of you might know what this is. Some of you will have no idea what this is. Um, This is, uh, for those of you who are under 25, this is a telephone, a telephone. That is what we used to use like 30 or 40 years ago to make phone calls. Now what a phone call is, is it's like a text message or Snapchat, except you pick this thing up and you could only go as far as it would let you go and you would talk into this end and listen into the, in that end and that's very important. That's really the most important thing uh, when using one of these phone <laughs> I know you know what a phone is. I'm just mostly teasing. Um, What's amazing about these is like when we wanted to talk to somebody, this is what we would do. We would take this and we would stand there and we'd be like, I'm only halfway done. Like every time we had to go through that whole thing just to be able to talk to someone and then we'd put it to our ear and we'd be like, are they going to answer? Well, there's no way of knowing. Like we just would, would hope and occasionally we, like it would ring and they wouldn't answer, uh, but sometimes it wouldn't ring. We would just hear on the other end a noise that goes like this. Do you know what that is? I know some of you have never heard that noise before in your life. That is called a busy signal. And what that meant was they were at their house and they were already on the phone. Like they were already talking to someone and it wasn't you and there was nothing you could do about it. You just had to wait. You're just like, well, I guess I'll have to do that again in half an hour. It was so frustrating. Now, um... What's amazing to me is there are probably people in this room who have never heard a busy signal because we don't have them anymore. Does it even exist? I assume it still exists. But anyway, hey, this is not going to be old man Cleveland ranting about the good old days today. Um, Just put that away. I just, listen, I haven't used one of these in probably 20 years. I don't want to use one of these. I love my smartphone. Um, I remember like the first time I got a text message. Do you remember this? It popped up on my screen and I was like, ooh is this witchcraft? What, I, what just happened? <laughs> this is the best thing ever. I don't actually have to talk to the person. I'll just text them back. It was amazing. Um, so, but here's my point, right? If you have never had to use one of these rotary phones, I know that you appreciate your smartphone. But you will never appreciate your smartphone as much as those of us who have ever gotten a busy signal appreciate our smartphone, right? Isn't it true? We have like this different level of appreciation for something when we didn't grow up with it, when we spent years of our lives without it, and then it comes into our lives and we, we just appreciate it, it will far more than if we grew up always having it. We take those things for granted, that have been in our lives the whole time. They don't really impress us the way that they would have if we've lived without them. Now, if that is true of phones, wouldn't we suppose that that also could be true about the things of God, right? Have you ever experienced this in your life? I grew up in a Christian home. I am so tremendously thankful that I grew up in a Christian home. I believe in Jesus today, largely because my parents introduced me to Jesus and told me about who Jesus was. Out of curiosity, let's just do a quick survey here. How many of you would say that you are like me and you grew up in a home that was Christian? Okay. it's a fair percentage. How many of you would say that that is not true, that you did not grow up in a home that was Christian? Okay. So that is not an even split. For those of us who grew up hearing about Jesus, there are so many benefits. I would not trade that for anything. I am so tremendously thankful, but there is a downside. And the downside is, it is very hard for us to imagine what it would be like to hear this stuff for the very first time, right? When you've grown up to it. We're like kids these days with their cell phones. Only Jesus is our cell phone, and I'm not totally comfortable with that metaphor, but you you know what I'm saying. (laughs) I just want us to be aware of this as we dive into the scriptures today because we are going to hear the first ever public words of the only son of God. That's a pretty astounding thing. And he is gonna say a sentence that in every way is extraordinary. But if you've grown up with Christianity, you are gonna hear him say some words that you've probably heard a million times: words like kingdom, words like repent, words like believe and good news. And the thing we have to fight against is that our familiarity with those words would rob us of the incredible power of what Jesus is gonna say. So today, what I want to challenge us to do is to live listen as if it was for the first time, and to really allow these words to sink into our hearts as if we're hearing it for the first time, like we're getting our first text message after a life of busy signals. So can I pray to that end for us, and then we'll dive into the scripture. Lord, we ask that you give us new ears today. We recognize that what you are going to say to us is really a big deal. And so we'd ask that you give us the the sort of hearts that could receive it, that don't rush past it because we're familiar, but allow it to sit in our heart as if it was the big deal that it actually was. In your name I pray, amen. So Mark chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 14, which is the sentence that precedes like that first sentence that Jesus actually says. Mark 1 verse 14. Mark writes, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. So the phrase good news, that's, I think, the first thing that we really have to listen to in a new way. It comes from a Greek word, euangelion. Um, which uh, is where we get our word for evangelism, which is probably a word that is familiar to us. The people who first read Mark's uh, account of the gospel, that would have been familiar to them too, but in a very different way than it's familiar to us. Um, Before it was a religious word, euangelion was a political word. And it was really only used in this one context in the empire of Rome. When the Roman army would defeat a foe, they would send out a euangelion. It was this announcement. It was called good news, a good news proclamation. But it was specifically that the army had been victorious. And so right away, the people who are reading Mark, they would come to that and they would pause and they would say, well, wait a second. Like I've heard that word but not like this. What is this victory of God that Jesus is talking about? Mark is saying that is the nature of Jesus' announcement. He went into Galilee proclaiming the victory of God, that God had done something that he had won, that a foe had been vanquished by God. Now he's using that language, I think, to make us pause. And if we were the first century readers of this, the first question we would ask is, well, what, what victory? Like what did God actually win here? And that's when he hits us with this first sentence of Jesus. Verse 15. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's an extraordinary sentence. It's even more extraordinary if we, if we consider that this is the first sentence out of the mouth of the living God, like the the almighty God who created the universe shows up on earth in the form of Jesus and he says, what could I say? I will say this. I want us today to mostly just walk through this piece by piece um, because I think it's that important. Uh, Let's let's take the first part there. Jesus says, the time has come, meaning it's right now, like this moment that everyone had predicted, that had been prophesied, that everyone was waiting for, the moment that's going to change everything about the world is this moment right here. That's how he starts this. And I think if we were listening to this for the first time, like if we were in the crowd when Jesus said this, I would be tempted like, to look around and be like, well, it doesn't look like the time has come. I mean, everything is the same, like Rome's still in power, nothing has changed. And I think that that should be our first clue, that right away, Mark is beginning to hint at the fact that what we expect of God and what God's plan actually is are going to be pretty different. we have to accept this, that there's something about us as humans that what we want God to do and what he actually does, that does not always line up, and that is a huge message of the book of Mark, because a lot of people wanted Jesus to do a lot of things, but Jesus did the things that he set out to do, and that did not always line up with people's expectations. So Jesus, he says, the time has come, but then he tells us what this time is about, and he says, the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom is something that Jesus talks about 14 times in the book of Mark. This is, without a doubt, his favorite subject, the kingdom of God. It doesn't really relate to us because there's not a lot of kingdoms anymore, right? So we don't really understand that. Uh, His first century readers would have really been familiar with this word. He uses a Greek word, basileia. Uh, This is the word that we translate as empire or uh, kingdom in this case. Now, there was only one empire in Jesus' day, and that was Rome. So he chooses a word that is intended to be provocative, like he's thumbing his nose at the world's superpower, Rome. And he doesn't just say it in this moment, but if you read all the other 14 passages in the book, you will realize this, that he's trying to convince us that like we, we're familiar with what an empire is, but then there's this empire of God or this kingdom of God, and it is nothing like what you're familiar with, with these other empires. And what he's trying to do is to subvert and undermine, the, not just the empire of Rome, but every empire. And he was misunderstood at this point frequently. People thought, well, great, he's going to finally deal with the problem of Rome. But Jesus did not come just to undermine and subvert the empire of Rome. What he actually came to do was much bigger than that. He came to undermine and subvert every empire that ever has existed or ever would exist right? So it's not just this small thing dealing with the Roman problem. It's this really huge thing dealing with every empire that would ever be on earth, including and not limited to, like our own personal empires, right? Like like the kingdom of Jonathan is undermined by the kingdom of God. What he's saying is now everything on earth can now come under the reign of this loving and just king. And he doesn't say it's, it's beginning. He says it's always been. He says it's just come near, that it is like around us and it is in us and it is through us and that, that the world would be made whole again, that that is what this empire is about. Now, nobody understood him at this point, but what he's trying to show them is that he is going to rule in a way that crosses every border, Right? He is going to rule in a way that like, you couldn't put a boundary around it, like you couldn't contain it in a political ideology or a system, or even like a temple, like, like it's unleashed and it crosses every line on this earth, and even the strongest empires can't do that. Even the strongest empires eventually come to an end, eventually become defeated, but God's kingdom that lives inside us is kind of undefeated at this point. Because it's not contained, and that's the brilliance of it, and that's the power of it. And it kind of, when you, when you understand what actually he has unleashed in this moment, it kind of makes, like, the kingdoms of this world, even the Roman Empire, or even the America, or our own personal kingdom, it kind of makes them seem a little juvenile, doesn't it? Like, I mean, they're contained, they're kind of looking after their own interest. And Jesus says, I've started something that can't be contained. It's going to cross every border. And in response to that, he says the kingdom has come near. He invites us to do two things, or it's really, it's just one thing, but it has these two parts. He says, "Repent and believe. Repent and believe." And I bet if you grew up uh, in a Christian home, you've probably heard these words before, but you may not really connect to what they're meaning. The, this first word, "repent," is a Greek word metanoao. It just means to change your perspective. Now, in English, the word repent, there's only one place we ever hear the word repent, right? It's like here in church. It's a kind of a churchy word where you should repent. Um, But that wasn't true in Jesus' day. This just referred to any major shift in perspective or any turning in the way that you're living your life. So repent for us, because of how we've used it for many years, has become synonymous with this idea that we need to stop sinning. But the word is really bigger than that. It's really a much more holistic word. I grew up uh, hearing this word, repent. Um, but I only understood it to to be associated with sin. Like, so I thought if I was to repent, if I was repentant, then that would mean that I would avoid sexual sin, that I would not be mean to people, that I would not get drunk or do drugs, uh, that I would give money to church. Somehow that was always a part of it. And I would engage in a lot of spiritual activities. Um, And I thought if I did all that stuff, then that would mean that I have repented from my old life and I was living the new life. But what I actually just described, like that was the life of a Pharisee in Jesus' day. The Pharisees, they avoided all that stuff. They did all sorts of good stuff. And Jesus still, when he meets them, what does he say? Repent. So this word is much bigger than just that list. What this word actually means is to just turn your whole life towards the reign of God, towards the reign of this loving and just God. And the reality of it is it doesn't matter how many sins we avoid, it doesn't matter how much good stuff we do, you still have to turn your life to God. To be human means that we find ways, sometimes very creative ways, to orient ourselves away from God, to pursue something other than God. And some of us are really super creative, like we never do any really bad stuff, or like we do a lot of really noble stuff. Uh, But we've got to accept this. To be above average morally does not mean that we've embraced God. It doesn't. You know that, right? Just because you're above average morally does not mean that you've embraced God. It just means that you're above average morally. That's all it means. But Jesus says, even to those of us who are above average morally, you still need to turn. You still need to embrace God and turn every part of yourself towards him. But when we make repentance just about sin, we miss that or we minimize that. Let me give you a couple of examples of how I heard this or uh, one that how I heard it and one that I never heard growing up. Um, So like I heard growing up that you should repent from sexual sin, right? You may have heard this at a time or two. But I've internalized that in this way, that if you're struggling with sexual immorality, you should turn from that sin. You should trust that God cares for you and that He loves you enough that you should trust Him with your sexuality. Is that true? Well, sure, you absolutely should. You should repent because this loving and just God actually cares about you being whole sexually. And I know that's kind of a a mind-blowing thing that his kingdom would include our sexual wholeness, but it does. And and I heard that growing up, that that is a part of repentance. Maybe not quite in those words. Uh, What I would say is that we should do that not because God's so angry with us or so mad about our sexuality, but we should do that because he actually cares about our sexual well-being. But I heard growing up we should repent from sexual sin. That's true. That's true. Let me ask you another question, though. Here's another illustration. Um, if you have poor self-esteem, like if you, just, if you have areas of your life that you tend to be insecure about or aspects of who you are that you tend to second-guess into doubt and you have poor self-esteem, should you repent of that? Well, it, it is absolutely not a sin to be insecure, Right? like there, there's no way to prove that, or there's no way to make that case. It is not a sin to have bad self-esteem. But isn't this true? That in God's kingdom, one aspect of the kingdom of God is this recognition that every human is created with the image of God inside of them, and that God deeply loves every single one of us. And so we have tremendous value in God's eyes because he declares that we have tremendous value in God's eyes. And so to repent means that we embrace the value that he says that we have because he says that we have it. And it doesn't matter what the world says about our value. It doesn't matter even what we would say about our own value, that we turn from those voices to God's voice who says, you have tremendous value to me. And that's repentance, even though that has nothing to do with an area of sin. It has to do with just embracing this kingdom of this loving and just king. And part of that means embracing our value in his eyes. You know, there are dozens of issues like that that are issues of repentance, issues of us turning from one thing and embracing what it means to live in God's kingdom that have nothing to do with sin. And when we make it just about sin, we miss all of that stuff. Jesus says, hey, the kingdom is near. This kingdom is not like the things that you're used to. And so you're going to have to turn from those things to this kingdom and embrace it. You're going to have to learn this new way of being, not because God is so mad at you, but because his first words to you is, hey, it's time. This kingdom is here. Turn towards it. Metanoao is the word. That's the first half of our response. The second half is a word that we use, we wear out quite a bit in church, is just believe. Believe in Jesus. Believe the good news. What it means is just to embrace something. It means to put your faith in it. But this is what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean have the right opinion about something. Uh, That's not the sort of belief that Jesus is talking about. Uh, He's saying, entrust yourself to this truth in such a way that your future is different because you believe. Let me illustrate this. I recently, uh, just in August, I dropped my oldest son, Carter, off at Grand Canyon University in Phoenix, um, and uh, I, I started saying probably fall of, of last year, so in fall of his senior year, I started saying, man, Carter, you are ready. You're ready, um, and you, if any kid was ready to be off on his own, it was Carter, and, uh, I, and I kept saying that to him, and right up to the end when I was like, man, you are really ready, um, but I, Some of you, as we talk about it, I'd say, man, Carter's more ready for college than I was my senior year of college. I mean, like he just, he is this independent kid and he was totally ready. And that was what I believed, but it was really just an opinion until uh, a few weeks ago in August, uh, there was that moment where I, I gave him like the last hug and Becky and I walked from his dorm to our car And we drove away and we left him there. We haven't seen him since. I mean, we've talked on the phone. (laughs) In that moment, Carter's readiness was more than just an opinion. It was a belief, right? I entrusted myself to it. In my life, my son's life, my family's life will never be the same because of what I believe, that Carter is ready for the next level. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, believe in this sort of way that your life is never the same, that you do stuff because of it. What is it he's asking us to believe? Well, that's the last part of this sentence, the good news. There's that word again, euangelion. He's asking us to entrust ourselves to something that is fundamentally good. And this is important. This is the message from God to us. This message of good news, it is good news. It is actually good news. Now, I know this is true. I live in our world too. There's a fair amount of, like, uh, let's just say grumpy Christians out there. I, like, I'm not throwing stones. There's just some grumpy Christians out there um, who, when they talk about this stuff, talk about what Jesus is or what we stand for as believers. But it doesn't sound all that good. It doesn't sound like good news, but that's not Jesus. From Jesus' first word, he says, "Listen, I have something for you that is fundamentally good. I'm asking you to entrust yourself to something that is fundamentally good. This is not a message about your sinner or you're going to hell. This is an announcement of God's victory. It is a victory over sin, it is a victory over hell, a victory over death, a victory over all of the kingdoms of this world, including our own, over everything. It is a message about how God moves towards humans in love, and it is fundamentally good. Now, I know some of us, and I'm guilty of this, we've grown so used to this that we forget how extraordinary it is. But I would just say, listen, we have the, we're up against the same thing Jesus is. Everyone knows the bad news, right? We just, I think, intuitively understand it. Jesus was not talking to anyone who needed to be convinced that their sin is a problem. Like, they all just got that. And I think the same is true in our world. Now, I know there's a lot of people who may not like that word sin because of how we as Christians sometimes use it against them. But I think all of us Get what it means to be broken. I've never met someone who did not understand what it means to be broken. I've never met someone who was not in some way acquainted with just the pain and the grief of living in a fallen world, in a broken world. This world is a dark place, right? We all know it. Nobody has to convince us. What we have to actually be convinced of is the good news, And that's where Jesus starts. That's what makes his message so extraordinary. From the first sentence, he says, I have something finally for you that is good. God has something for you, and it's good. There's been this victory. There's this loving and just kingdom that cannot be contained, that's really close to you, and I just want you to turn towards it. Believe it in a way that changes your future. There are no qualifiers. This is good news for all, and it is all good news. The time has come. The kingdom has come near. Repent and believe the good news because it's actually good. It's quite a sentence, right? There's a lot there, as you would expect if God came to earth and said something um, What's interesting about the sentence and what's notable about the sentence is what comes next. Look at verse 16. This is the next thing. After he makes that announcement, uh, here's what Jesus does. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus says, and I'll send you out to fish for people. And once they left their nets and followed him, when he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat Preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired man and followed him. So Jesus makes this statement about what his life is about, about what his mission is, about the kingdom of God, about the good news. And the next thing he does is he goes out and he finds some friends and he says, Hey, come do this thing with me. Let's do it together. And they repent. They repent from their fishing business. See how that word can be used? They, it's, fishing is not a sin, um, but they repent from fishing and they believe and their lives are never the same. Now, we're going to talk a lot about these disciples in this series. Uh, they're kind of the comic relief in the book of Mark. I don't know if you've discovered that just yet, uh, but before, I don't want to get too much into the disciples. I just want us to observe this fact. The kingdom is always looking for a people. The kingdom is always looking for a people. And our king, King Jesus, he's actually a quite aggressive king. He is the sort of kingdom, or he's the sort of king who will interrupt you and say, Hey, why don't you stop doing that thing that you're doing and come do my thing? Wouldn't that be great? And he's constantly inviting us in here into his kingdom. Like his kingdom, it's like the opposite of like border control and immigration and all that stuff. He doesn't have a wall. He's got like one of those, uh, what are those moving sidewalks in an airport called? Like that's on the border of his kingdom because he just, he wants us in it. He invites us in all the time. His kingdom's always looking for a people. That doesn't mean he always interrupts our career like he did for the disciples. There's plenty of moments where he says, stay where you are. But I do think we have to acknowledge this, that whether we stay where we are, whether we jump into a new career like the disciples did, whatever else we say about Jesus, we have to acknowledge he is really disruptive, isn't he? Jesus is really disruptive. He is a disruptive king. It is in his nature. And I read these passages sometimes like where people drop everything and just start doing what Jesus asks them to do, and they're inspiring and they're a little bit scary. I think actually what we should do with those passages is we should just ask ourselves these sorts of questions. Are we holding on to the things in our life so tightly that we wind up actually resisting the disruption that Jesus wants to bring into our life? If we are, like if we wind up resisting that disruptive Jesus and ultimately what that means for us is we're like we just miss out on some of the good news. Like God has this dream of doing something with us and when we try to keep him from messing up our lives like it's ultimately we just miss out on some fun. Like imagine if those guys would have stayed in the boat and they wouldn't have joined Jesus. Like I There's nothing in that boat that they left behind that was better than what they were about to experience with Jesus. And that doesn't mean that it was all easy. They had some hard moments with Jesus, didn't they? But the hard moments were going to come regardless. The hard moments were going to come even if they ran their dad's fishing business. What they got to experience by leaning into the disruption that Jesus brought into their life was the incredible good news. You know, ultimately... No matter how many days you've known about Jesus or whether this is the first day you're ever hearing the story, um, this invitation is the same for us. That's what he's saying to each of us today, whether we grew up with him or not. Repent, believe the good news, and follow me. I want to disrupt something in your life. I want you to join me. Now, if you grew up around this stuff and you made a decision to follow Jesus many years ago, I, like I just want you to realize he's still saying that to you. Keep turning, not just from sins, but keep turning from all of those things that, that keep you from this loving and just king. And keep believing, right? Like this message of Christ is something that we keep entrusting ourselves to in a way that alters our future because we believe. He's still saying it, even if you've known him all your life, he's still disruptive. But I also would suppose that some of us maybe we're just testing the waters on this whole Jesus thing, and we're maybe not yet, uh, wouldn't consider ourselves followers. I don't know about you, but this idea of like a radically different kingdom that crosses all borders that's full of love and justice, I find that incredibly appealing to be a part of that. Um, if that's appealing to you, I, that's something that brings us to these tables, right? These communion tables. Because while Jesus' good news message was 100% good news for us, you know, it's this God who's for us, this God who's full of love and forgiveness, freely given. It doesn't mean it didn't cost. And it cost Jesus something. It cost him his life, this, like this victory, this announcement of victory, it had one casualty, and that was Jesus. The Bible tells us that the night before he died, the night before he was crucified, Jesus knew what was going to happen, and so he took a piece of bread, and he had these disciples around him who had followed him now for a few years, and he broke it, and he said, like, this bread is like my body, and it's going to be broken, but not for no reason. It's going to be broken for you. And then the next day, it was. And that same night, he took this cup, And he said, this cup, it's like a new promise, a new covenant, and it's going to be sealed tomorrow by the blood that is spilt from me, is what Jesus said. But what this promise represents is that you can be a part of God's kingdom forever, even after you die, and that that's what I am accomplishing here. And then the next day, he dies on the cross. And to me, what's the most astounding thing to me always about Jesus is that he does not just like, he's God, so I I presume he could just like snap his fingers and all the bad stuff would be gone. But he doesn't do that, does he? Instead of just wiping away all of the bad stuff in our world, he actually enters into it and he actually experiences it. Which I don't know why, but somehow that is so much better than if he would have just done the magic thing and wiped it away. And so he enters into it and experiences it with us. And what we believe is that that day on the cross, he died for our sins, he died to restore us, he died to usher us into this kingdom. It's just grace, it's freely given, he embraces us. You know, there's a lot of ways that we find our way to Jesus and find our way to his grace. One of the ways, this is what I did when I was younger, is just through simple prayer, we just kind of pray to God and we say, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you, I believe you are who you said you are. Whether you've prayed that prayer before many years ago, or if you've never prayed it, I, like, I, I don't know about you, I just, I need to keep trusting him. And so this sort of a prayer is something that is a regular part of my life, and I wonder if we could just pray it together. I'm going to put this on the screen here. Um, if you have faith in Jesus, or even if you don't, and you just say, hey, this sounds interesting to me, I want to step into this, this would be a, a simple way to do that, that sort of a prayer. Um, I need to keep repenting and believing. I need to keep embracing the good news. Would it be all right if we prayed this together? Would you stand with me? If this is your heart, let's, let's say this together. Jesus, I trust you are who you said you are. I trust that the good news is really good. I trust that I'm forgiven because you love me. I turn to you and I put my faith in you. Amen. That is what he's inviting us to from that first sentence. We're gonna come to these tables together. I I wanna ask you to do this today. Um, Like take the bread and take the cup and then go back to your seat, but don't take it just yet. I'm gonna come back up we'll do that all together in a minute these tables celebrate Christ's death and resurrection. They celebrate that the time has come now. The kingdom is near to you, and the good news is actually good news. Come, let's celebrate together.